Hi there, I'm Violet Luca, host of the Harper's Podcast. Harper's Magazine provides readers with a unique perspective on the issues that drive our national and international conversation through the voices of the most promising and most distinguished names in literature. Join me, along with my colleagues and Harper's contributors, every week. You can subscribe to the podcast on Substack at harpersmagazine.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade, Derek Davison. And we're very excited to welcome to the podcast three people today, and that is Patrick Wyman, Milo Edwards, and Phoebe Roy to discuss their podcast, Rome, the podcast about HBO's Rome. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you for having us. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. Uh, so here's the first obvious question. Why the hell do a podcast about a show that ended how long ago? 15 years ago? 20 years ago? Long, long time. It's been a while. 17, 18 years ago. It's, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been, yeah, it's, it's been almost as long while. as, uh, since Rome itself collapsed. So why do a podcast mm. on the HBO show Rome? I, f- I feel like there's a few reasons, but I mean, first of all, because we all love Rome. Like I, like I did my PhD in Rome, uh, in, on, on Roman topics. Uh, Milo and Phoebe have deep background in doing Roman stuff. And the show holds up surprisingly well in a whole bunch of different ways, like in kind of the complexity of its treatment of the subject matter. Um, but also as kind of one of the first of the like real good prestige TV series that have now, I mean, like almost gotten to the point where they've reached a, where they've reached self parody. Um, so it's kind of refreshing to look back on the start of prestige TV as a thing, but also because Rome's cool as hell and, and we like Rome. Yeah, it is the show that invented the concept of the prestige TV MILF. And we do, we do need one of Patrick's key interests, and we need to talk about that in, uh, in more detail. It's in honor of Mother's Day this week. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes, precisely. It's quite, it's quite funny that you pointed out how long ago uh, HBO's Rome finished because uh, the idea for it came uh, through Milo and I's uh, podcast, which is about Seinfeld, which is even older. So we just, we just like, watching old this TV is up shows. to date for us this is like this is literally just <laughs> like, getting oh, closer what, what, you to the to present a, day you want us to watch a new show i don't want to watch a new show 2007 that's too that's far far too new mm. we're going to um, talk about entourage next <laughs> I, well i gotta be honest i thought we were going to do our list today so i'm not prepared for this um such a good show a uh, kirby is such a great actor so um Maybe you guys could talk about, because we're talking a little bit about Prestige TV before we get into the show. How did Rome actually come to be? Because uh, I, I can't think of many uh, shows that take place in antiquity since then. There's Spartacus, I know, and there's a couple of other ones. But how and why did HBO decide to do a show about Rome? And maybe you could contextualize it in this moment of, you know, post-Oz, post-Sopranos, pre-Mad Men, pre-Breaking Bad, kind of contemporaneous with The Wire, and Rome is why Deadwood is canceled, of course. So what what's behind this show in the first place? So I, I think this was the age when HBO was really swinging for the fences. And like it, it's shocking 
even in hindsight, how much money they put into this particular TV series. I mean, like tens of millions of dollars just into building the sets. I mean, they built an enormous replica of first century BC Rome in which to shoot this thing. Um, and it took them a lot longer than a day, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> it did. And also uh, when the set uh, the set burned down, um, which was a big part of the reason why the show ended when it did was because they didn't want to spend tens of millions of dollars more to, to completely rebuild the, the sets to to make another season of it. So, but it, it, it belonged to this period when they, they were, people were expanding the definition of what TV could be and what you could do in a TV series. And so they threw just incredible actors at it. The writing is really, the writing is really good. Um, they put tens of millions of dollars behind it. And so like, it's this odd, it, it belongs to this odd moment in TV where they're expanding the definitions of what TV as a, as a medium can do. But before, prestige TV has become like its own category with its own tropes and like the category of the prestige TV MILF, which Milo mentioned, like mm. the be- before prestige TV became a thing against which er, like an actual category against which you could compare other things. So it's, it occupies this like weird place in the history of prestige TV too. It was also partnered with, uh, with the BBC, which is much more of a kind of BBC show uh, than you would associate with being an American show. But um, obviously they didn't have enough money to uh, build a set and then uh, burn it down. They had to burn it down uh, for reasons of authenticity. You can't really have a a Rome set Mm. if you don't uh, deliberately set it on fire um, at, at, at one stage or another. And it was, and I think it was much more kind of borrowing from the tradition of a kind of big films about about the ancient world um so it was kind of originally pitched i believe as a mini series and then hbo decided to kind of expand it out and to uh, and to expand it out into two seasons over a kind of longer period of time than like the initial plan but i but yeah it it, it very much um it very much was being commissioned at a time when uh, people were wondering about like how you could like how you could make TV more like a more like a text and like more part of the kind of the like the kind of the intellectual like kind of cultural and sort of cultural milieu at, like in the same way that a film was but just you know make it small. Yeah, that yeah. it's. I'm I'm really uh, like I, I love what Phoebe just mentioned because she's talking about the the tradition of like big budget like ancient epics and in most ways that like Rome is really a subversion of the tropes of like the sword and sandals mm. epic. And that's what makes it, that's what makes it such an interesting show is the, the focus on like, so yeah, sure. It has like the big headliners and people who are, you know, it's got its Caesar, it's got it, it's got its Atia, it's got, it's got Pompey and, and, and all those fellas, but mm. that's not, I don't think, but like the show is far more about the impact that their actions have on the society around them and, and people who are below them on the social scale um, and what the lives of people who are lower down are like than it is about, you know, kind of grand epic sweeping narratives. Mm. And that that's what makes it's what gives the show a lot of rewatch value. I, I think is that it's so much more subtle in its critiques of empire and critiques of hierarchy. Mm. And it, like the, it, it's so much more subtle in those things than the vast majority 
of films and TV series that deal with this. It's got, it's got like you mentioned Spartacus and Spartacus, which is delightfully unhinged and, and in its own way, like I love that show, but it's, it's way more over the top about the way in which it's a critique of that, that particular time and, uh, and people who idolize it. Um, Mm. And, and Rome is, but Rome is way more subtle about it. It's got, it's, it's got some really good quality throwback BBC type writing. It's just, it's, Mm. it is really, really, really good. I think it's, it's shocking how well it holds up. And it comes from this more ambitious era in TV. You know, it's 2005. Lehman Brothers is doing great. Like, Bear Stearns <laughs> will never collapse. You know, you can buy 14 houses in South Florida and that's your retirement sorted. And most importantly, the TV producers are still doing cocaine. They haven't yet had to replace them with the accountants because of Lehman Brothers going bankrupt. And when you do enough cocaine, they're like, we're going to get Polly Walker naked. And we're going to spend $10 million on a set that we're going to burn down. And that, that's what you need in TV. We need it. Bring it back. That's what we want. It's true. It's true. Big, big cocaine energy. Yeah. I want to talk, uh, I want to ask you guys about the, the portrayal of the city itself. We talked, you talked about the sets and the, the expense that went into building them. Danny mentioned Deadwood, which, uh, I think there are some similarities in terms of Deadwood being a show that, tries to demystify the West, which is uh, the, the, the old mm. West, the Wild West, which is something that was already kind of going on uh, in, in Hollywood at the time. But this, one, this show takes that same attitude toward Rome. And instead of everything being white marble and pristine togas and everybody kind of in the Senate Hall and you know looking very fancy, it shows Rome itself as this very lived-in, city with mm. sacrifices going on in the street and you know every the muddy you know everybody's walking through mud and you know they don't always look like uh their toga just came from the dry cleaner um you know even the the opening sequence of the show which is the opening credits the these uh, animated graffiti images i don't know if you they've ever shown uh hollywood has ever shown graffiti on the walls of, of the city of rome uh so it's just like it's just very interesting to me the way the city itself is portrayed uh maybe you guys could talk a little bit about that yeah, this the city itself it in in a way that reflects the reality of ancient rome the city itself is a text right like the city is the city is lived in written on dynamic it changes based on your perspective um, based on who's going through it. Um, and, and it is, I like the, I like the Deadwood parallel a lot because Deadwood isn't an anti-Western in the way that like the wild bunch is an anti-Western, you know what I mean? Where it's like a deliberate, where in the sense that it's a deliberate subversion of the, of the tropes, it's just a much more realistic look at life in a frontier society. But the, but Rome is almost, Rome is almost much more, um, directly opposed to the tropes of the epic genre. Yeah. Like there's, it, it, it's almost more wild bunch than it is Deadwood in the way in which it kind of directly takes on the tropes. And maybe and you could actually them. talk for a second about what those tropes are for people yeah, who might, be, so, might not be familiar. Yeah. I mean, so the, the, the classic example is the, the sword and sandals genre. So like the Spartacus movie, like Spartacus or Ben Hur, um, these, uh, I mean, gladiator too. Gladiator is kind of the mm-hmm. latest example with which people are most familiar, but what separates, uh, a sword and sandals epic from Rome itself is the perspective. So a, a sword and sandals epic is a costume drama in which you are essentially transposing modern values 
into the and and putting and putting ancient costumes on them right so in in gladiator when uh when when russell crowe is talking about his conception of freedom and and marcus Aurelius is talking about rome and the people like that's all horse shit like that has absolutely nothing to do (laughs) with with imperial rome at all like those are completely foreign conceptions of freedom of of liberty of who gets to be free and who doesn't of how political authority is supposed to work nothing to do with actual ancient Rome. The What separates that from the TV series Rome is that it is much more of an emic perspective on, on the period. Like the, the ways in which the characters act, the things that they value are much more in keeping with the actual time itself and with what people really believed about, you know, what, are, what is a hierarchy supposed to look like? Who is supposed to be in charge of whom? Um, why are you supposed to listen to, to your social betters? Like it, it, it takes much more seriously the values of that period instead of just dressing up modern values in ancient costumes. Mm. That's what, that's the kind of the definition of a sword and sandals epic is, is something like that. Where, yeah. If I could just, if I could just add to that as well is uh, the sword and sandals epic to me has always been characterized by its sentimentalization of the ancient world and of the insistence of, uh, of imposing, uh, really, really inappropriate projections on top of it. So, uh, in, in Spartacus, um, which is like, is it, is it like, is it, is it, it's a good, it's a good film. It's, it's long. It's really, really long. That's, that's the one, that is one thing I would say about Spartacus, but mm. there's this, uh, that you can't get away from this idea that they are trying to cast Spartacus as a kind of Christ figure. And you're, and they're trying to kind of, they're trying to invest him with, uh, with a kind of broad anti-slavery because slavery is kind of antithetical to, uh, to kind of human decency. It is antithetical to the idea of all, all men being equal before God. Um, and that is almost certainly not what the route behind the, behind Spartacus's slave rebellion would have, would have been. Uh, the distaste was not for slavery as an institution, but for the idea of you yourself being a slave. And, uh, maybe Spartacus himself had a, had a slightly more kind of ideological bent. We don't really know, but his followers, um, when they were kind of rampaging through the city and the countryside, one of the first things that they did was they went to their old masters' houses and enslaved their old masters. So they were not interested in like in a kind of ideological opposition to slavery. The old slavery the, switcheroo. The old slavery switcheroo. It's the last. Th- it's the last thing you want. I it's thought the they last had us in the first half move. there. I really well, did. And then they just ah, oh, they just they just pulled that. They just pulled the old goosey gander on us. Uh, and in the and in and in the film, it's very very different. And in the film of Gladiator, there is this bit which I remember being so wound up by because I was watching it while I was like doing my degree. And you know, when you're doing a degree and you think you know everything about every like about a subject, and so like anything which is kind of even like faintly um, antagonistic to that, you're like, ah, oh, no, this is uh, completely incorrect. But there is this bit where uh, Marcus Aurelius says that he is going to restore the Republic. And that this is supposed to be his ideological project, and that is such a nonsense. Like that, it's that that cannot possibly have been true. By the time Marcus Aurelius was in charge of Rome, the Republic was was functionally mytho history. It was something that was occasionally kind of called upon, um, and you know, our kind of our great forebears. But it was it nobody had any sense that they were going to be restoring the Republic, even people who were sort of following the kind of philosopher king line. And uh, Rome, the series, 
struck me um, when we started talking about it as much more of a historiographical project than an ideological one, and certainly not one that is particularly interested in sentimentalizing the Romans. It's trying to write about the Romans in the way that the Romans wrote about the Romans. And part of that, and it's really interesting what you say about like the city looking so kind of sort of disgusting and grotty because um, one of the characters is uh, is this lad called Octavian who grows up to be Augustus, who's Rome's first emperor. He's a, he's a horrible, snotty little shit in the show, which I think is probably mm. pretty accurate. He probably was a, a horrible, snotty little shit. Um, and when Augustus uh, grew up and took and took everything over, one of the things that he was so proud of was his urban projects within the city. And, he, and there's this famous line where he says that he found Rome built of brick and he left it of marble. So, so this idea that like Rome is basically kind of falling to pieces around their ears is a very, very contemporary one and is also one with the built-in knowledge of what came later. Um with Augustus, uh, Augustus' urban projects and Augustus leaving the city of marble. It's a lot like living in London today. If you like. So I think this leads naturally to talking about Varinus and Pullo. So Varinus and Pullo oh, yeah. are mentioned very briefly in commentary on the Gallic war- Wars by Caesar, but they are really the beating heart of the show. And the different paths they take really serve as the narrative spine, like the, the sort of downstairs to the upstairs of Caesar and Augustus and Adia and everyone. So could you maybe talk a little bit about what do we actually know about the historic Varinus and Pullo and the role that they play in the show themselves? We don't really know very much about them as historical figures, but they they serve they serve a, a profound narrative function in Rome the series because of precisely the dynamic that you talked about because they allow us to see you know life as it's actually lived as opposed to the as opposed to the the kind of elite quarters of society. Um, but they have a very Forrest Gump kind of quality to them in in the way that their their basic function in the story is to is to tie the various bits together and to make sure that we've always got a kind of a point of view or a perspective wherever we need to have it for the for the show to work they're they're fascinating characters and they're fascinatingly ambiguous much more so than I realized the first time I watched this show back in the day. Um, like, I feel like the first time I watched it, I very much had a sense that we're kind of supposed to be rooting for Varinus and Polo, that like we're supposed to be identifying with them as kind of the heroes of the story. And watching it as a no longer a glorified child um, <laughs> made, me, made me realize the precise extent to which they do lots of really shitty things. And we, the audience, are supposed to feel kind of shitty about the shitty things that they do. And so the the critique of Rome, and there is there are a whole bunch of different critiques of Rome that are embedded in this series, and that are that are that reflect the showmakers' critiques of empire and of Rome worship in the present day. Um, Verinus and Pullo are just as much the vehicles for those critiques as the elite figures are. Mm. That's that's one of the things that makes it a really, really interesting show and that makes the characters interesting is that even the characters with whom we are supposed to identify most closely are still often, if if not pretty much all the time, supposed to be we're supposed to be wondering why they're doing the things that they're doing, whether these are right, whether they're good and what us identifying with them says about us and our and our perspective on Rome. Mm. 
Mm. They really do have this fascinating odd couple energy because Varinus just believes so totally in kind of like Rome as a concept and an institution and Pullo is just like pure eared guy. He likes to fuck, he likes to kill people and so on. They kind of have the energy of like a modern day double act between like a sort of a, 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 a high up Democrat functionary in the DNC and like a January 6th guy who have to hang out every day. <laughs> like That's the kind of just Varinus being like, well, there are rules you shouldn't question them and Pullo being like oh it's fun though you know um, so yeah, it's he's, great he's the they're Q like shaman. yeah yeah like, yeah exactly so, so what is maybe we could dive a little bit into sort of the the cosmology or the imaginary of of the roman person and how that specifically goes against modern mores because of course the the famous idea is that once you, you sympathize with the protagonist because they're the protagonist. But like you say, Pullo in particular does things that are very much against modern norms of mm-hmm. what would be acceptable by a protagonist, any hero. So how, how is that written? H- how did they get these ideas Were they relying on historiography? What did they use to sort of construct this counter narrative world? They they leaned very seriously into getting the vibes of Rome right, much more so than the actual historical details, which mm. is frankly which which is frankly the right way to do something like this. What what you're what you're trying to do if you want to make a show that is I, I think representative of a place and a time that is not your own is to take seriously its beliefs about how the world is supposed to function. Right. So at the heart of Roman society and at the heart of this series are questions about hierarchy, about what's your place in society, to whom, like, to whom are you supposed to listen? Who can you, like, who can you boss around? Who can boss you around? And what tools can each of those parties use to enforce that? Right. So slavery is a constant theme in Rome, the series, because slavery was not just a major facet of Roman society, but also embodied the dynamic of somebody who's up and somebody who's down. Mm. That was like slavery was just the most prominent example of that dynamic in Roman society. It wasn't the whole thing. Everybody in Roman society has a place and everybody's fighting for their place. And that place is always above someone and below someone, right? So you are, you are constantly having to figure out where you are in relation to other people and who gets to tell who what to do and who gets to kill whom. And so there's this scene late in the first season that we, we talked about a lot when we were doing that, we were doing this where Polo in a fit of rage kills a slave boy who belongs to Varinus, right? And Varinus's reaction to this, and I think this perfectly sums up the entire dynamic of the show is, not horror that Polo committed a murder. It, what offends Varinus is that his property has been destroyed, right? That this, this boy who belonged to him in his house, in Varinus's house, in the place that Varinus owns, that this, that this crime was committed, it's an offense against Varinus, not an offense against the person of the, uh, of mm-hmm. the slave, mm-hmm. right? He's saying and, to Polo, we're actually a shoes off household. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah, I mean, that's the that's the offense. But the the if you can take that seriously, right, and you don't turn it into a joke, you don't turn them into figures of mockery or monsters for having this conversation. You present it very matter of factly. That sums up the idea of getting at a truly different perspective on how the world works. Mm-hmm. That really flies in the face of our own assumptions about who has value as a human being. If you can take that dynamic seriously, then you can tell a much more honest story about Rome. 
And also, um, Pat, because Pat and I are slightly in disagreement about about whether or not you are supposed to uh, disapprove of some of the worst excesses of uh, Pillow and Verena's. I think that I think that this is one of the things that it, the show actually does less successfully. I think that there is a very strong sense at the end that they are supposed to be that they are supposed to be redeemed. Um, they are given they are given a redemption art. They are, and I think that. Uh, I think that resists the kind of easy explanation of oh you are supposed to think these are like these are like uh, uh, like pairs of sack like sacks of shit and there are other like kind of little bits and pieces and I think this is this is very prestige TV as well when you have this kind of tension between um, between being between being kind of hit as accurate as possible to the vibes of the period that you're covering, but at the same time, not having your main characters being just like absolutely like appallingly unwatchable. And they do this, they do this a ton in Mad Men when they like make a kind of point of Don Draper being, uh, being really, really not a racist. That's like, that's something which like comes up like again and again and again. And this is something that they also, that they also do, they also do in in Rome. So there's this bit, there's this bit where uh, where Polo falls in love with a slave girl, and um, and he's very very offended by the uh, by the suggestion that he that he would rape the slave girl, which which seemed which seemed like in keeping with how you how you kind of structure a protagonist, but not at all in keeping with um, how realistic that would have been because she wouldn't have been she wouldn't have had a kind of personhood. Um, Mm. And it's also not at all the the part that was so bothersome about that, which we which we talked about, was that it's also not in keeping with how they had portrayed Polo up to that point. No, because it's like, yeah, it's, has, a, it's a it's a it's a total heel turn. Um, yeah, almost like they Verena's kind of changed this, his character like halfway through. Yeah, yeah. Verena's has this line where he's like, "When was the last time you had a woman who wasn't crying or being paid?" And like that's that seems much more accurate mm. as far as the character of Pullo as we're supposed to understand him as opposed to him suddenly having scruples about uh, about mm. sexually assaulting a slave girl. Pullo believes in compensating women for their work. You know, he's he's up on the on the pay gap. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely that, think he's, that he's they very modern sensibility. Yeah, yeah, they definitely redeem him. I, I'm I'm with yeah. Phoebe here. Pullo especially like. Yeah. He is very redeemed, oh. in my opinion. <laughs> it, it, it is interesting. I mean, it's, you know, he does kill this guy. I mean, murders the the guy that, that uh, you know his uh, his would be wife, and then winds up marrying her, mm. which I think is is very reflective of how things would have worked back then. If you wanted to kill a slave, you killed a slave, and you marry the girl. You want to marry the girl? Fine, she's a slave girl. Uh, but yeah, you do kind of, there is this sense. I, I, that was one of the things that made me uncomfortable about the show is that it just, it, we, we have this happen and then we like never talk about it again. Yeah. Like that's, mm. that's gone. It completely lets him off the hook. Yeah. I've, I've come around in the, in the months since we, <laughs> since we talked about this, I think Phoebe's a hundred percent, right? The show lets him off the hook, but we don't have to, no, right? True. Like that's yeah, the, yeah. that's, Fine. but, and, and that's honestly one of the fun things about this show that, that. I still appreciate is that like you, it, it gives you as the audience space to make those judgments in a way that feels quite freeing and a lot and quite different than a lot of other prestige TV series that have followed it that are much more kind of moralistic in their bent, mm. like there where there's a much more obvious moral perspective on it. And I, I think it gives you a lot of freedom as an audience watching this to be like, yeah, no, I really do think that guy sucks. 
Mm. Like that's, mm. uh, it, it feels like you've got a lot more space to do that than, than is perhaps yeah. the case nowadays. I also think it goes a bit back to what we were saying about just like completely different conceptions of how the world works that I think the show does take a kind of like, well, not per se like moral relativist stance, but just to say like these people are products of their environment. And it is in a way sort of inappropriate to judge them in a modern moral framework because like what was considered the framework of being a good person was simply so different. And so and like how a Roman would have looked at those behaviors is also so different. And it's hard to like divorce because there are probably things that we do now that in a thousand years, if human civilization still exists, will seem insane to people. Mm. <laughs> um, and I think that's an interesting idea to entertain, even in a TV show. It, it really it really leans into that perspective, right? Like it it it's with a couple of with a couple of exceptions that that are like jarring because of how much they stand out against that mm. kind of general backdrop like it's it is striking how deeply the show is like cool with its moral world and is has made its peace with that and like that was those were clearly discussions that they had right as they're setting this up and as they're writing this and they're they're instructing the actors on how they're going to play these roles like they they clearly decided that to the extent that the show has an overarching theme that's it it's that this is the world people are products of their world and they behave in ways that are consistent with the lessons that they've learned with which they've been inculcated mm. And that's the, but that's the point I'm I'm making really about um about how jarring it is when they have when they have someone in order to make them a kind of you know kind of halfway sympathizable with character um and that's and that does stand out I think you do have to you do have to either decide when you're making this kind of show on what the moral universe is going to be and kind of stick to that even if it makes for some uncomfortable viewing or you make all of your characters like totally anachronistic. And I don't think you can sort of, I don't think you can quite do both. And that's, I think one of the things that's just like a little bit, a little bit unsuccessful with, um, with the Pillow and Verena stuff. But that's also because um, I'm like, uh, it's really unfashionable. I'm a, I'm a huge defender of, uh, of the great man of history. I think it's, I, I like it. I want to hear about Caesar. I only want to hear about Caesar. I don't want to hear about some guy who fought for Caesar. I don't care. <laughs> Why don't we talk about Caesar then? <laughs> I want to talk, uh, get you guys to talk about the uh, the upstairs part of the show, which which is the the backdrop, this the the great politics, great power mm. politics of the collapse of the first triumvirate. Uh, we we start the show with Caesar in Gaul. Crassus has already gone off to get himself killed in the east, uh, and and the show covers the, the first season at least covers the uh, the final breakdown of the relationship between Caesar and Pompey. Uh, maybe uh, you could talk a little bit about that context, and then what you uh, thought of the portrayals of the two uh, great men here, Caesar and and Pompey Magnus. It's it's one of the things that again makes this show a valuable watch in, in at this point in time is that I think it quite accurately portrays what it's like to live through the breakdown of a political system mm. where you have some people who are still deeply invested in the institutions and traditions that they hold to be at the heart of that system. And then there are other people who have completely adapted and adopted the idea that like, oh, no, all the rules are out the window. Like we can do whatever we want here and and call it whatever we want. And the, and everybody's going to have to go along with it because, you know, the old rules don't apply anymore. And so the tension between 
tradition, institutions, and people who are reaching back to, to justify themselves and their position in society versus the idea that like, oh, no, we're doing different things now. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot more space and freedom for action. Like that, that political tension is kind of at the heart, is at the heart of that upstairs storyline is like, are you, are you on the side of, of breaking the rules or on you, are you on the side of preserving the rules for, to, for whom are the rules beneficial? Like who gets to be in charge in a system in which we're respecting tradition and institutions? And are those people worthy of holding power? Those are some of kind of the animating questions that go along with this. And it pretty fruitfully explores them. Like you don't have to look at the, like, like you've got the, the, the way the show portrays the optimates, the, the, um, the kind of aristocratic, uh, traditionalist, uh, political faction in Rome, but like, it doesn't think that they're particularly competent or good or making these de- or making decisions on the basis of like the, the good of the Roman people. Like there's no, uh, and, and conversely, like, Caesar, even though he he calls himself a man of the people, it, the show does not like lean into the idea that Caesar is some sort of great populist, right? Like they, these are realistic political actors who are doing things for reasons that make sense to them, um, that have impacts both negative and positive on the on kind of the common people around them. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it feels like there's a big divide in the show. Between, there's kind of this like old guard, new guard thing, which I think in some ways is is historically accurate in the way they're portrayed. And I feel like in some ways the biggest difference in the portrayal is like the the old guard are so like non libidinous, <laughs> and the and the new guard are like they're horny, they wanna they wanna run Rome, they wanna fuck everything, you know. Whereas like you know Cato the elder looks like he would come dust, um, and you know Pompey just wants to talk about the time he crucified some pirates thirty years ago, and there's that kind of there's a, there's a just sort of a creaking, crusty dustiness to all of the old, and I think that is something when you study that period comes across a lot in the source material. I mean, you got rem- you got to remember that Pompey is not old god he's old god at this point when he's kind of broken down and mm. failing but as far as as far as the roman aristocrats are concerned pompey is new god he is a repulsive little upstart all of his power like derives from his like from his like military capacities and his military capacities as a young man as yeah. well like as mm. far as as far as Cato, as far as Cato and even cicero which is very funny um is concerned pompey is pompey is basically a kind of a like almost like a kind of a trump figure that he's a kind of that he's just like a he's just like a kind of vulgar tacky guy with just with a just with a a lot of money um silly so couldn't deal with the pirates he couldn't <laughs> folks the pirates they were causing a lot of problems yeah. i had to go over there there were no more pirates they said after i went not a single pirate <laughs> I only even said that to give you an opportunity to do the voice. See what Thank a good, see what a good and generous co-host. Is, we call a layup. <laughs> co-host, yeah. I am. This is the kind of energy you can expect from the <laughs> from Rome, a podcast about Rome. Like, well, yeah, the, the podcast, I believe. <laughs> the, yeah. Well, Pompey, yeah, because long before Pompey was like on the side of the optimates here, he was that he was Sola's teenage butcher. He was the Adoliscans Carnifex, right? So he's mm. he's basically making his reputation as a young hatchet man for the previous generation mm. that that managed to fuck up the Republic, right? This is so th- that's what one of the things that makes Pompey an interesting character in history, but also in this in this show is the that like nobody is like like. 
the characters that we see who are present at the final breakdown of the Republic, like we're in it for the last iteration of the Republic's breakdown too. Like this is not a stable system. It hasn't been for a long time. Mm. And the people who are pining for a return to kind of institutional stability and institutional normalcy have never actually experienced that, that their entire political lives have been defined by these upheavals. And so when Pompey is when when Pompey is being the strong man, um, or try or trying and failing to be the strong man and to oppose Caesar, he's not drawing on some like grand Republican tradition. He's drawing on the tradition of the previous generation yeah. of civil wars that have been fought. Right. So there's there's this sense that pervades the show that like and, and which. I, I think is pretty accurate to the period in which the battle has already been lost. The battle was lost a long time ago. Mm. Like the, like things have changed and the, the way that the series portrays Cato, the elder or, or Cato, the Cato, the younger uh, pardon um, as this like crusty relic of another era is entirely in keeping with the time itself that like what this guy is fucking railing on about and like the, the, the most myorum and the, the, the way that we used to do things like that's been gone for ages if it ever actually existed at all. So there's this great tension between innovation and tradition and who's on what side of that and kind of the futility of reach uh, of reaching back for an invented tradition at all. Mm. Like it's an, it's a really interesting dynamic. Also, so another thing that a really important thing to remember when you're watching this is just in this in this period there is you could you could the, this is the final period of crisis of the republic. There have been several before, um, as Pat, as Pat rightly points out. It's not even a case of oh well people can remember this time of stability. There hasn't been stability in the republic, not serious stability for about two hundred years by the, by this point. But you could act as somebody who is making the best use of your of the circumstances and making the best use of the context um and you could be quite radical and quite rule-breaking as long as you found something in the past to give it this kind of this to give it this kind of traditional basis as long as you found a custom however specious however um however long ago it was that this was been used with any meaning as long as you could apply that to your actions uh then you would more or less be able to get away with anything and this is caesar's great terrible error that he instead of um instead of hanging up his dictator hat because uh, we have this idea that like a dictator is it, 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 that's not a kind of legitimate political position in um in the roman republic it absolutely was it was just a name for a political office you were voted dictator uh, by the Senate to deal with a kind of period of crisis and deal with, uh, you were sent in to deal with something and then you hung up and then you hung up your hat. And then the, the error Caesar makes is getting himself voted dictator for life. So it was, it was much less his actions and more his unwillingness, uh, unwillingness to kind of follow, uh, follow along, uh, along with the idea that you had to find this kind of historical institutional basis for everything, which I, which is, I think, a really important point to, to, to bring out while you're watching it. So this is a natural place to talk about Adia and depictions of Roman femininity oh, yeah. and motherhood. So she, I think, like pops off the screen, like, all, uh, you know, immediate star. So who is the historical Adia who people might not be as familiar with um, when compared with Caesar and Augustus? And how does the show depict motherhood, femininity, and things like that? 
Everyone's looking at looking me at like me. I'm gonna, like it's like, I'm just like <laughs> shall I just like just I just just take this one? Go for it. Um, so so Atia is uh, is the mother of Octavian and Octavia. Uh, Octavian, who later become uh, becomes Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. The depiction of her, I think, is absolutely fascinating. Uh, the show keeps her alive for a lot longer than she historically lived for. She, I can't remember exactly when it was she died, but it was like, it was not that long after Caesar and they keep her and they keep her in the show for a lot longer. She was deemed to be, um, the ideal, uh, in the, in the contemporary period and just after she was deemed to be the ideal Roman matron that she was chased and that she was uh, and that her whole lot in life was to make sure that her family was being kept safe and that their interests were being represented but in an appropriately feminine behind the scene scenes way she is um she's the only woman in um in the later historian tacitus who is described as being worth a damn he is not he's not a fan of women as a as as a whole, that's not his. That's not really his. That's not really his interest. But he keeps saying, with the exception of Augustus' mother Atia, who was a good woman. She was a good. She was a good Roman matron. And not like the other girls. Not. She was not like the other girls. Octavia gets a little bit of a free pass, but that's. She's also really annoying. So, <laughs> but it, I thought. I thought it was really, really interesting how kind of cartoonishly outsized and villainous and uh kind of sexually rapacious and violent uh like d- there weren't a lot of options for uh even kind of upper class roman women to exercise violence uh but atia uh, atia manages to do it and she manages to she manages to use violence in a kind of con- in a controlling way in a way to advance her own interests and the interests of her children um and she also uses it in a in a vengeful way and they and they show her wielding an enormous amount of enormous amount of power and enormous amount of influence, which she may which she may well have done because it's not it, there's a sort there's a sort of odd idea that um the 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 best way of being really really free as a woman in the in in the Roman Republic was if you were from one of the kind of more ordinary kind of strata of society that you were sort of that as long as that, like if you were like a sex worker then you were probably you know doing fine and that's not re- and that's not really true it's just that in terms of who is the most visible to us um, and um, yeah, I think it was a really, really fascinating decision because Asia is really the only character who departs quite so strongly from the source material. Um, she's she's really the only historical figure who they kind of invented a whole new character for. Um, and I think that was a really interesting decision. And she's yeah, she's so she is so good in it. She is like she's an absolute scene stealer. They knew the idea of Atia was more important. They knew like a 14-year-old boy needed to be awakened in some way by her slapping Octavian around the face and calling him a filthy little pervert. Like they knew that that was, <laughs> that was an experience that a lot of teenage boys needed to have. And of course, that is obviously the most important thing. Whenever you're, whenever you're writing Absolutely. a TV show, how are the teenage boys going uh, to cope with this? Man, when our Latin teacher at school told us to watch this for homework, we were like, oh man, this must be the next day we couldn't believe our luck. We were like, has she watched it? Does she realize <laughs> when she is just I'm watching it again? Yeah, I mean, there's it it every good TV show contains multitudes. And uh mm. and and this one certainly did. I the the just just to build on on what Phoebe was saying, like 
the the one of the things that makes Atia so interesting is that she's a subversion of male expectations, mm. right? So to come back, so to come back to the the thing about Tacitus, because Tacitus is a huge misogynist, but quite representative of the way that upper class male Romans looked at women, and so much of the power that Atia wields in this show fly would have flown under the radar and does fly under the radar of the male political actors that that populate the show, right? So the things that she does. Are we see them as the viewer, but they are effectively hidden or invisible to the characters that we are we are conditioned to think are important to mm-hmm. Mark Antony, to Caesar, to to Pompey, to to Brutus, to all of them. And it, it's one of the most subversive and interesting things about the show is it's like what if the what if it's not that these women aren't exercising power, it's that men are blind, powerful men are blind to the ways in which they're exercising power, right? Yeah. And so the and the fact that she's presented as such a transgressive figure makes her her wielding of power. It kind of makes it subtler because we see Atia, the rapaciously sexual. We see Atia, the the controller of her, the controller and guide of her family. And it almost like it, it makes her use of um, kind of underhanded or deceptive ways of, of manipulating events less um Le- like less obvious or less jarring mm-hmm. because we see because we see her in that way yeah. yeah and she's probably a bit in a way representative of a kind of a slightly later archetype of a roman woman like when you get women later on like messina and agrippina the younger who kind of are known outwardly for being very like politically manipulative and sexually rapacious and are kind of are famous for that in the source material uh, and they're sort of almost anachronistically moved it <laughs> sort of a hundred years back yeah they well because she's she's a She's a subversion of the Roman expectation of what a good woman is supposed to be like, mm. but she's also representative of what Roman men feared about women. Yeah, right that mm. that they might be exercising power like that. That they might that like Roman the Romans were the the Roman way of understanding gender is is fascinating, and it's much different than the Greeks because the Greeks really expect women to be kind of hidden away um like it, it scandalized the greeks if there was a woman present during a drinking party like this was not mm. like women were supposed to be separate they were supposed to be cloistered and hidden away especially upper class women roman women were much more upfront and were much more present in public life than greek women were again this scandalized the greeks when they would go to rome and they would mm. see like aristocratic women being present for banquets and things like that but the Romans still also had this very strong idea of what proper female behavior was. So there's there's a tension between the public roles women are expected to play, and the fact that there's and the fact that they're still supposed to embody this kind of private moral rectitude, mm. and the the kind of what's fascinating about the way that this show deals with women is how it gets into that space, which is a very like again, it's like an emic space. It's a it, it's it, it is taking the perspective of the society itself in a lot of really important ways to, to, to define these characters and guide their behavior and actions. Yeah. Well, because, because aristocratic Roman women, they had a, they had roles within the structure of power. They had roles yes. as, as, uh, as wives and as, and as, uh, domestic labor producers um they were also in charge of their, in charge of their household. So they were in charge of the kind of the household economy. Um, but they, but they all, but they also uh, were used to kind of 
to like grease the wheels of alliances like that the like the final like the final kind of breakdown between Pompey and Caesar is after the death of Pompey's wife who was Caesar's daughter much beloved daughter and this is like the fight this is like the final kind of strand kind of keeping the two men together um and well, you're done. you've not watered her <laughs> she's turned bran and the uh, and there are and there and, and, and there and there are several scenes where it where it shows uh where it shows kind of a sort of, sort of prominent roman politicians sort of saying oh and have you met my wife this she, she is a, she is a member of this house and and you sort of see how this kind of structuring kind of plays out the one thing that i would say in terms of um in terms of it being anachronistic is that actually what it's what the portrayal is much more similar to is the is the contemporary portrayal of this woman of this woman called fulvia who was uh mark antony's wife who is not a character in the show who was a who was a hugely hated um, and divisive figure, and one of the things that uh, that so kind of that so kind of freaked out her Roman male contemporaries was this idea that she was going to be raising a private army, and this turned into and this turned into a um, like almost like a kind of organizing kind of tr- sort of trope fear around like what happens if you give a woman too much power. The the it's it's very strange because it's very it's very dissimilar to kind of other philosophical conceptions of like femininity in other parts of the world at the time. The issue was not about female weakness or female stupidity or female kind of uselessness. It was women are so potentially monstrous that any kind of power will lead to this like to will lead to this terrible violent devastation much much worse than anything that the men could do and this was the thing that came up again and again and again about Fulvia like watch her watch her because she's going to be raising a private army and she actually did um very briefly raise a kind of like more of a kind of a mob than <laughs> than a private army um and it was also Fulvia who asked for, after Cicero's execution, it was Fulvia who asked for his head and who asked for the nail to be driven through his tongue. Uh, so she was, she was a, she was a very violent and ambitious person. And I think that, and I think that she was much more the source for this portrayal of Atia, who is constantly underestimated um by by the men to their uh, to their cost but the other women in the show are underestimated as well because Sevilia, who is much more of a traditional roman matron who um who wields power through her pride in her son um who is you know who is a who is the last scion of the of of, of his of Isn't his he ancient lovely? dynasty he he's well? lovely oh look at him look at him you know he's single no, he's single. Can't believe it. Can't believe it. The girls don't like him. Can't think why. Can't think why. Um, but she is also has the has a great potential for vengeance and for violence. And it strongly suggests in the show that the that the final that the final plot to kill Caesar is down to Sevilla's rage at being at being rejected, which is which is not the usual way of uh, of portraying how that that chain of events kicks off so yeah the, the the women in the show are certainly interesting but like obviously Atia is their is their queen but i am i'm i am very fascinated by the decisions that they took with with the character so as we wrap up here i, I just have one question how do you think obviously we talked a lot about how the show itself 
try to depict Rome as Rome, but it's also made in a particular time and place. So how does this reflect the sort of aughts, the end of history, the war on terror? Do you see any modern resonances in the show itself? I think the questions that it asks about the nature of empire mm-hmm. are were were particular. They they resonate today, but they also really resonated in the early two thousands. And also, you know, the 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 other context is like the end of the British Empire, right? Like this. Remember, this is a co production between HBO and the BBC, mm-hmm. and so this is written in a post handover of Hong Kong era. And, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of questions being tossed around about like what is empire what is its legacy what effect does it have on the people with whom it comes into contact and one of the the really refreshing things about the show is that it in no way glamorizes that mm. right like the like empire is bad for the people that it touches mm. in Rome's portrayal of the world like there's you know one of one of the really powerful and kind of understated scenes because precisely because they don't make a big deal about it at all is Varinus walking through a sli- is Varinus walking through a market that is just full of um, Gallic slaves who have been taken and he's talking with the slave dealer and the slave dealer's like you know, prices are down, glut on the market. And like the, the, the sheer matter of factness with which this whole exchange takes place. And Varinus, of course, is a person who has ha- taken an active hand in putting these people in cages. Those yeah. are that they are his investment from this campaign. He is directly benefiting from the human misery of the people who are, who are stuffed in these cages, right? Like you, as a viewer, you are asked to take that seriously. Mm. You're, you're asked to understand like that, that between the lines of, of, you know, Caesar's fine prose and the Gallic wars are millions of immiserated people and that Mm. Caesar's success and his wealth and his power are built on the backs of these absolutely horrendous deeds. I think it's much more of a critique of colonialism um, than it is, than it is a critique of any kind of anything going on in the contemporary period. And I don't know whether that was down to, um, a little bit of maybe kind of concern about, um, about trying to make, trying to make a point about, about the kind of the present time, because in 2007, that was what, four years, that was four years after the invasion of Iraq. So that was still, that's still very much, that that's the contemporary period that's not that's there's no kind of like let's take a step back and have a look at it and this was also still very much the time when anyone who wanted to uh for example treat september the 11th as like a historical event and to place it in any kind of any kind of cultural historical or sort of social context was 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 drummed out of out of public life so i suspect if there was any sense of should we be trying to project some kind of 9-11 allegory or even or, or an Iraq or Afghanistan allegory onto this, um, is that something that we should be doing or should we maybe be looking more at, yeah, more at the end of the, more at the end of the British Empire? Because the, yeah, the, uh, the handing over of Hong Kong was in what, 1997? Yeah. When they handed when they handed Hong Kong yeah. back, so so I think that so I think it was so I think it's much more of a kind of a sort of sort of Shakespearean like we're definitely not going to be mm. trying to uh, trying to really really go in on the contemporary period, but we could maybe 
have some kind mm. of subtle suggestions of it uh through kind of a number of a number of different lenses and a number of different different projections yeah, i think there's a bit of a riff on british empire and american empire in the bit where they go to egypt and you know caesar is dealing with the kind of the fat little boy king one of our favorite characters in the whole show yeah we like, love, we love, love the, the fat, fat little boy king, king. we love him so much more of the fat little boy king at all times and there's kind of this bit where caesar is talking to some of the some of the other romans there and he's like look you know they used to be a great empire and look at them now ruled by a fat little boy and then he's like anyway time to never consider the decline of empire and it and that does in some way feel like you know the americans talking to the brits half the time and we're like look we know we're fucked but you're gonna be fucked too (laughs) yeah it's very like it's almost striking in the extent to which it is not allegory at all Mm. like it's not it is very it is very distinctly not trying to be a product of the early 2000s. It, I mean, yeah. it, that's never avoidable because the people who are writing the episodes and the actors who are doing it, like, you know, you're always going to be a product of your time to a greater or lesser degree. But it's asking much longer term questions than ones that specifically belong to the early 2000s. I mean, it matters, like, it asks questions about empire because empire is a big deal in terms of how you want to understand the world. It asks Mm -hmm. questions about colonialism because colonialism is a big deal in how you want to understand the world. It asks questions about how you deal with political power and conflicts within a ruling elite because those are kind of, if not eternal, at least continuously relevant questions to ask. Uh, So it's, it's one of the things that makes it, a viable rewatch even you know a couple of decades after the fact because it's asking questions that that resonate without its answers being specific to that time mm-hmm. like kingdom like contrast it with like kingdom of heaven right kingdom of heaven oh, do I is have very to? yes you have to i'm, I'm forcing you to King, kingdom of heaven is absolutely a goddamn product of the mid 2000s mm. you know what i mean like that that movie could only only make sense in hindsight as a product of that very specific time and place. Not like whatever your whatever your beefs with with the movie and Ridley Scott and Orlando Goddamn Bloom, um, you know you can however you want to take that. Like that movie is allegory. It is allegory that belongs in that time and place, and that is very explicitly not the case with this show. Mm. Mm. Everyone, check out Rome the podcast about hbo's rome thank you for joining us i'm not going to repeat your names because there's too many of you but everyone <laughs> check out rome and we'll see you all soon bye 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 bye